Good morning, how are you today? <laughs> oh Lord. Yesterday morning, I don't know what you do on Saturday mornings, but if you get up early and drive around, there's no one, there's no one driving. It's, it's the America we used to know. But um, yesterday morning, a plug for the Harvest Crusade, um, I was invited to, to do a, a study, a Bible study for um, kind of their kickoff. They bring their staff together and all the volunteers and this big room filled with people. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, that'd be, that'd be an honor. So um, I went down there. And um, I went from like just mellow, sitting in my truck, drinking coffee, kind of going over my notes, and I walked into this big hotel room. And I've never been around so many fired up, excited people from, listen, all around the nation. And they, they come in to serve, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, I was intimidated, man. I was like, wow, i got to wake up. Come on, Lance, wake up. And um, I realized there was a hunger in that room, and a, a hunger for Jesus, and a hunger in all of these people, they just wanted to see other people saved. It just, it just radiated from them. And it was an honor to, to, to share, but um, they were talking about, um, that we were worshiping, and the worship was just, they were there. They took me to the throne, and I was so excited because we're teaching about the throne um, this morning, but... Um, it's, it's not at Anaheim Stadium, it's at the Honda Center, and uh, I watched last night and listened to Greg's message. Gifted, anointed man, but just very clear, if you know anybody that um, needs Jesus, uh, just pick them up. You, you should, so I can do some, hey, you want to go to a concert? It's free. You don't have to tell them there's a guy talking at the end, they'll figure that out. But um, I sent the link to... Almost everyone I knew that I felt needed just hope in all my contacts yesterday. And, and it was amazing to see the response of people. I even had someone text me back, no thanks. And, you know, my heart sank. And I'm like, wow. Because you kind of take that personal. And then you're, wait a minute. How does God feel at a world that would be rejecting him? Um, so be praying for the vent tonight. This is in our backyard um, what will God be adding to the fold, to the family, to your family, to us, through a message tonight? Get the link out. We've, we've broadcast it through our Facebook. It will be broadcast again tonight on Facebook. Um, and then just get the link and send it to everyone you know that needs hope, that needs Jesus. And watch the responses. It starts some conversation. It, it'll teach you how to pray for them. And you might even find people come up to you in heaven and thank you one day for sending them that link because they opened their heart that night to Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn our Bibles over to Revelation chapter 5. And in um, chapter 4, of course, John hears a trumpet. He finds himself in heaven. It's the future. He's on the Isle of Patmos, and the, the future is before him. He's able to, to, to just be seeing what is in the future. He's at the throne. Chapter 5, he begins to try in human terms to describe what he's seeing as he sees God the Father on the throne and, and just using terms to describe his beauty and the, the, the majesty and the power and the might and then what it was like around the throne. As, as, as the, there's four living creatures there and these 24 elders and there's lightning and thundering. And, and um, then in chapter 5, this we were in 
chapter 5 last week. We got through one verse, so you got to pick it up this morning, by the way. But um, as he, there's something just catches his eye. And um, he saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, and it was written on both sides, and it was sealed with seven seals. And if you weren't here last week, we went into depth on that because that is the title deed to the earth. And that title deed, as we talked about, was forfeited in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the fall and the subsequent results of that, the curse. All of that played out. That was when the title deed that God had given to them to have authority and dominion over what he had created was forfeited back to Satan or to Satan. And we went into into depth last week and gave great um, current examples of a fallen world today and the, the source of that. So we don't blame God. So if you weren't here last week, um, I would highly encourage you because that is a big part of moving forward in the book of Revelation. As we get into chapter 5, why does he judge the earth? What, what's the source of all of this? When we get into chapter 19 and chapter 20 and he comes back, that's all tied into um, the fall and his redeeming the earth and his coming back and establishing his kingdom and whatnot. So we went into depth last week about that. Um, so I think it's very, very important. But on the title deed, the outside of, of a scroll that was a title deed, there would be, as we noted, a redemptive clause. Um, in, in Hebrew culture, they, God wanted the land to stay with his people. And so if you lost your land or you sold your land um, on the title deed, you were able to write a clause, a redemptive clause on the outside of that scroll um, outlining the, the, the conditions that need to be met. And at the top of that is you'd have to be a relative and you'd have to be able and you'd have to be willing. Able, you'd have to have the resources, but you'd have to be willing as well. And if you weren't willing, you can get uh, a goel, a kinsman redeemer, um, and they could come along. And we gave some examples uh, on that out of the Old Testament as well and redeem uh, the land back. But this isn't just a title deed to a piece of land. This is the title deed to the earth itself. And so in verse 2, we pick up now, then I saw a strong angel, possibly Gabriel, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? So whoever the angel was, um, we'll just say it's Gabriel, but um, a strong angel, but he's very aware of what was happening around the throne. He knew who was sitting on the throne. He knew that, that, that holding something in the right hand would have been, uh, it spoke of authority. He would have known that the Father was holding the title deed to the earth in his hand. And, and the angel must have been close enough to see the conditions written on the outside. So the cry... Who's worthy? Who's able to meet the requirements of redeeming the earth back? They have to be a close kin to the original owner. They have to be worthy and able to pay the price. They've got to be able to prove it. And the idea, when we talk about willing, that's important, but not just willing. <laughs> There's a lot of people that have been willing to take the earth if you will. Alexander the Great was willing to conquer the earth. 
Napoleon was willing to rule the earth. Hitler was willing to rule the earth. But the question is not so much who is willing, but who is worthy here at the throne? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Verse 3, and, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able. So the question is, well, who is able to open the scroll or to look at it? So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to, to look at it. No one was able, in the Greek, the ideas, no one had the power, no one had the authority. Not, not a patriarch, not Abraham, not Moses, not Samson with his strength, not Solomon with his wisdom, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, not Paul the apostle. No one was worthy to meet the qualifications of redemption, so John weeps. The Greek word is he was sobbing convulsively. John is looking at the effects of the fall. The title deed under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, the one who is working in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2, which is Satan. He sees the spiral downward of the world, the corrupt course that it's on, the wars, the evil, the brokenness of a sin-riddled world, and he weeps. He saw broken lives. He saw broken marriages. He saw broken families. He saw idolatry. He saw immorality. He saw orphans. He saw widows. He saw the starving, the impoverished. He saw people without God. He saw people without hope. He saw people in bondage to sin, and, and he just wept. Now, now, most people believe that our world is broken. They see the devastation. They see it getting worse. We as Christians, we see the devastation. We see the disorder and we see the decline of all of that. And we turn to God because we believe God is our only hope. Amen? Amen. But the non-believing world, <clears throat> they see the same thing. But the non-believer, the one who chooses not to believe in God, they got to put their faith in something. So the non-believing world that chooses not to put their faith in God will put their faith in man. Godless men looked at the wisdom of men. That's their source. That's their hope. They believe that humanity, possibly equipped with modern science or modern philosophies or modern technology, the latest ideologies, well, that is able to mold the world in what, <clears throat> into what it's supposed to be, whatever they envision the world is supposed to be. A progressing planet of peace, prosperity, equity, the ultimate utopia, we're hearing all of that these days. In order to pursue their mission, they need to steer people away from other views, <clears throat> like the trappings of Christianity, they would say, where people put their trust in God and not man. But after 6,000 <clears throat> 6, years of man ruling the planet, what do we have? We should be able to look around if man is the answer and not see decline and not see devastation. But man is not the answer. Caesar Augustus and his ambitions were not the answer. Alexander the Great was not the answer. Napoleon, Hitler, 
Hirohito, the Imperial Japan, all of that was not the answer. No dynasty, no empire that man ever set up is the answer. Not the Roman Empire, not the Persian Empire, not the Ottoman Empire. The British Empire that encompassed nearly a quarter of the planet was not the answer. Imperialism, communism, nationalism is not the answer. No plan or scheme of man is the answer. No movement, here we go. No party, no deal that man puts into motion is the answer. I don't care how green the deal is that man forms, it is not the answer to a broken, sin-riddled world. Jesus is the answer. In reality, depraved humans that claim to have the answer for a broken world have only left the world in a more broken state. They have passed on, successively, a world in question, a world filled with violence, evil, lawlessness, a world filled with uncertainty and fear. And that is what John sees, and that is why John weeps. John knows that if no one is found worthy to redeem back the title deed, to redeem back the world, the world will remain in its hopeless condition. As the world continues its disappointing search in the methods of man, it's comforting to know that the Bible reveals the solution. As I've entitled this message, God's Solution to a Broken World. In verse 5, an elder taps John on the shoulder and says, Hey, a worthy one has been found. Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Again, Old Testament references to the coming Messiah. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. That title assigned to Jesus there, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, reference to Genesis 9, where Jacob prophetically gave the scepter to Judah and made it the tribe of the kings. Judah's symbol was a lion. In Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob said to Judah, you're going to be the ruling tribe, the scepter shall not depart from you. The scepter is a picture of authority. It's a picture of royalty. We know that a king is to come from that line. And we know that Jesus, the Son of God, is from the line of Judah. When we follow his genealogy, we see that. Remember again, when Jesus was being crucified, Pilate had a sign fixed over Jesus on the cross that said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And it was written for everyone to understand. It was written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, and it was written in Latin. And the religious leaders came and said, we want that sign changed. We want it to be changed to he claims to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate's like, no, 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 no. It is going to stay as it is. And if you took the first letters of those four words that made up that sign in Hebrew... It was Y-H-W-H, God's name found more than 6,000 times in the New Testament. But he's also the root of David. This speaks of his deity, God's promised Messiah that would come from David's line, foretold in Isaiah chapter 11, 1 and 2, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a, a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So John, 
He weeps. Then he sees, and he sees that Christ is worthy to open the book because he has prevailed. It means to overcome, to conquer, to win by victory. The victory came on that first Easter Sunday when the world realized that Jesus was risen from the dead. Then in verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne um, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though at his, it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. I'm sure as John looked, probably expecting to see some mighty conquering figure, but he sees a lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, those covenants... Throughout the Old Covenant, the question throughout the Old Covenant is, where is the lamb? We need your lamb. Bring your lamb. And they would sacrifice a lamb as atonement, forgiveness for your sins. The priest would take that lamb and symbolically put your hands on that lamb with his. And it was the idea of conveying your sin to that lamb on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, they would do it on behalf of the nation. But the theme of the New, New Testament, as we, we flip the pages into the New Testament, it's not where is the lamb, it's here is the lamb. <laughs> and, and everyone's pointing to Jesus, as we would see in John 1.29 by his cousin. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is what he referenced Jesus as, as Jesus was coming to be baptized by his cousin. Jesus is called the Lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 6, God wrath, God's wrath, excuse me, is the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 7, saints are seen as being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 19, we the believers are seen as the bride of the Lamb, and so forth. But we see the Lamb... And it looked as if it had, been it had been slain. It's been rightfully said that the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on the lamb. Isaiah 52, 14, speaking of the crucified Messiah, it talked about his appearance was marred more than any other man. But again, this is all about redemption in the redemption of our souls, in the redemption of the earth. It's all tied to that one act of the slain lamb. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That is why we're going to see the, the chorus echoing out, worthy is the lamb in verse 12. But this is not an ordinary lamb. Seven, seven horns here. Again, this is symbolic. Animals with big horns have big authority, and this is what it pictures. Seven eyes speak of all wisdom, sees all, knows all. Seven spirits speaks of the fullness of God's spirit. And so when we worship Jesus, we worship Jesus for who he is. We also will talk about this where we worship him for where he is. He is the slain lamb, but he is in heaven. 
He is not in a manger, right? Amen? He is not on a cross, nor is he in a tomb. It seems like just a few days ago, we were walking through Israel with a bunch of you, and we were, we were celebrating an empty tomb. We were worshiping the Lord and, and, and thanking him as we were in a garden next to an empty tomb that quite possibly was the tomb they had laid him, where he rose from the dead. But he has ascended, and he is exalted into heaven at the center of all that transpires in heaven. Verse 7, then he, Jesus, the lamb, came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's the kinsman redeemer. Tie that into last week. The kinsman redeemer, the goel, says, you know what? I'll take that. The question would be, does he qualify? Well, we noted that he must be related. Well, in Philippians chapter 2, 7 and 8, it says that he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. John 1, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He became a blood relative to mankind as he was divinely placed into the womb of Mary. But not only must he be related, he must be able. So what is the cost? What did he use to pay the debt? We just talked about that he paid with his own blood. When Jesus was on the cross and he said it is finished, once he shed his blood to telestai, you might say there was a word stamped over a receipt of debt showing that the debt was paid, but he must be willing. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down and I have the power to take it up. In Matthew 13, 14, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. It's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of him taking on flesh. The purpose of his taking on flesh. It's a picture of him going to the cross to redeem. He bought the world so he might purchase his bride out of the world. The treasure was the wife, the church. It's a picture of God giving all for mankind. And so you and I must pause right now and consider how valuable we are to God. So valuable that he would sacrifice his son to buy the earth in order to get me and you out of it. Amen? When Jesus, the incarnate son of God, took the scroll from the Father, everything changed. The rule of humanity over all of creation, which had been derailed by the fall and wrecked by the curse, will be restored through Jesus Christ. As a human descendant of Adam, Jesus is qualified to fulfill the original calling of humanity to exercise dominion over the earth and to subdue it, restoring the conditions of paradise 
throughout the whole world, and he will. As the divine son of God, he has the power and the authority to fulfill the calling where Adam failed. So right here, looking into the future, so there are some religious movements out there that believe the world is bad, but they believe it's going from bad to better. Okay, so let's set our theology on the world straight as it relates to that. John is looking into the future. This is yet to happen. And as he looks into the future, just let me use a little bit of surfer terminology, the world is really jacked up. Okay? It's not going to get better. That doesn't diminish our calling to be light and salt. It doesn't diminish our calling to run with the Great Commission. It doesn't diminish our calling to stand up and vote our biblical values. It doesn't diminish our calling to want to see laws change that will favor and line up with God's word. But understand, we'll fight our cause and we'll stand for the ultimate cause in advancing the kingdom of God. But the world as a whole, biblically, the Bible says it's going to be really bad in the end. Lawlessness will abound, Jesus says. The love of many will wax cold in Matthew chapter 24. But there is a day when the Redeemer is going to set things right. And we're going to be part of that. And this is the beginning of that process of God putting everything in its rightful place by placing everything into the right hands, the hands of his son. And as a result, if you really believe this and you really saw this, what would you do? Well, all of heaven is going to burst forth into praise as the kinsman or kinsman redeemer takes the title deed of the earth. Verse 8, now... When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You know, we pray a lot of times for America. We pray for the world. Lord, turn it around. Lord, turn America around. Lord, turn California around. In the name of Jesus, save our governor. We have all these prayers. And we're like, is God ever, are these getting through? Yeah, they're stored up. But he hasn't answered the prayer. I'm even praying, God bless America. God redeem America. God bring the world back to its rightful place. God, please remove evil from the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day he will. (laughs) Just because he hasn't today doesn't mean he won't. Let's line up our lives with his word and the timetable of his word. Amen? And one day he will. We'll be part of that. And we see that he's like, I got, I, got, I got your prayers, Lance. I got them. I got them right here. They're right around the throne room. And they sang a new song. Saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us by, or to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. What a reason to rejoice. The four living creatures, these are angelic beings, different kinds of angels, angelic beings, the 24 elders, humans that that are in heaven, representing authority and whatnot. We're not sure exactly who they are, as we went through that in chapter 4. But... 
They all fall before the Lamb with harps and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saint. And then this, verse 9, this new song breaks out from people that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, people from around the entire world, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And it says they sang a new song. By the way, notice that worship involves singing. There's, a, there's giving. There's all kinds of ways we worship God, through praying and praising, but you're at a church that worships God through singing. Some of you are like, I thought that was just the 20, 30 minutes that was kind of set up for me to chill, kind of closely, slowly get the church, check in my kids and that kind of thing. No, 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 no. We actually have this time that's biblical, that's set aside. It's kind of the warm-up for eternity. They sing a new song. Who? Countless saints. Some of you are like, I can't sing. Your wife knows that. <laughs> so does God. And he's like, louder, please. Please, louder. I can't carry a note. He knows that. Carry it longer, would you please? Loud, soft, God loves it all. Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise. We can do that. I was watching the harvest last night, and I was like, man, this younger generation that they were panning in on, they're not ashamed of Jesus. They're, they're, they're not too, too stiff. And I'm not talking about chronology has something to do with that. I'm talking about familiarity will make us stiff in our heart. Begin to think about people around us. Yesterday, the worship as I was saying, was so intense that the worship leader, this young lady, stopped and just said, I love to see the awe. We should never lose our awe of God. Folks, you come to a church that has gifted, anointed people that, that get here early with anticipation that you're going to come and follow them into the throne room. And I pray you're awake and you're alert, you're attentive, and you're leaning in and you focus on Jesus. And it changes your life every time you do. Fresh lyrics, fresh melody, fresh experience. You want a song to be anointed? Aim it at Jesus. You want worship at a church to be anointed? Make it about Jesus. He's the one that has accomplished redemption on the cross. It's time to worship. Even for us, we'll be there. That's a picture of redeemed people worshiping. We have the purpose. He's redeemed us. And then he's also enlisted us into his eternal kingdom to reign, to rule and reign on earth as his kings and priests. One day he will come and he will, he will set his foot on the Mount of Olives. We'll talk about this 19 and 20 in, chapter, uh, in, in Revelation. And we will come back with him in the second coming. And he will establish the millennial reign. He'll rule and reign for a thousand years. We're going to rule and reign with him. This is, this is our future. We should be excited about that. This is our future. We should be excited about that. Yeah. I'm going to go in the green room and scream right now. Just scream. 
And there's a second eruption of praise here. The first was the song by the redeemed. Chorus to the Redeemer, you've redeemed us to God by your blood. The second is by angels. The third, another eruption by angels. There's a lot we can learn from angels as well. Verse 11, then I looked and behold, I heard the voice of many angels. How many would that be? A lot. They're around the throne, living creatures, the elders, and a number of them. It's just, don't do the math. It's like it's incalculable. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. John's like, masses of angels. Hmm. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. How loud would that be? How sincere, how right, how theologically accurate how loud, how clear, how passionate is your worship, is your praise, is your thankfulness. Let me express it to the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. There's so much reservation in God's people today that will not be seen in heaven. Not by the redeemed, not by angels for sure. John heard a voice of many angels around the throne. It was audible. It was perceptible. It was corporate. No solos. I got nothing about sol against solos, but man, we're just going to all be at it in heaven. A united anthem of, of angelic beings and redeemed saints that get it right, all praising Jesus together. What's that going to be? Angels. They're mentioned in 34 books of the Bible. Mentioned 103 times in the Old Testament, 165 times in the New Testament. Angolos in the Greek means messenger. Created by God. Colossians chapter 1, of course. They're ministering spirits that are sent to do the will of God. We see them here. Many of them, their purpose, they just praise God. They possess will, intelligence. They display joy, emotion, desire, passion. They're not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. They're not omniscient. Only God is. Again, some are cherub, cherubim, some are seraphim. Sometimes in the Old Testament, we see them visibly displayed. Like the one that was placed at the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword to keep man out. Those that visited Abraham and talked with him and invited, were invited in to eat with him. Some were sent to punish Sodom and Gomorrah. There was one that Balaam's donkey saw before Balaam. <laughs> Gideon, Daniel, Elijah, David, many others in the Old Testament saw angels. But then we see them described at the birth of Christ. They're there. We see them at the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, ministering to him. At the resurrection. Acts 12, they are seen springing Peter out of prison. Acts 27, they appear to Paul on a sinking ship. 
than they will be at the second coming of Christ. But most time, they're invisible. And I believe, and I've read many people who have written about this, they believe they're invisible because man just does this lame stuff and worships stuff like that. And God's like, nah, you're not going to worship angels. They're not to be worshipped. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 talks about that. We'll get to Revelation 22, and John's going to be all worked up and see an angel. He's going to be tempted to worship an angel, and he's going to say, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Worship God. In Daniel, angels are called, this is important, watchers. They're watchers. What are they watching? Sometimes us. And watching us, they're observing they're observing the one part of creation that God has offered redemption to as far as living beings, human beings. They know that God treats no other created being like us. They know that God has extended free will uniquely to us as human beings. He's extended grace, forgiveness, salvation, sanctification, endowment of the Holy Spirit, endowment of spiritual gifts to take part in the church. The Great Commission, eternal life, a future as priests and kings that will rule with him. Just to us, they know that. They know that about us, unique to us. And they trip out, no doubt. As Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and, and searched carefully of the grace that would come. The prophets always looked forward to the grace that would come through Jesus, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, it was revealed not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. So they look into God's plan with great interest. They must be blown away when they look at the lives of people that have accepted God's plan by accepting his son. They must blow their minds when they see transformation from old to new. Redemption, adoption. Must blow their mind when they see someone filled with the Spirit of God and, 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 and they're gifted and God begins to use them. And they see that play out in their marriage, play that played out in their family, played out in the community. When they they just see God, their God that they're worshiping all the time, working in the affairs of man, because they're desiring and tripping out as they look into all of that, must blow their minds. And what would they think when they would look at the world that God sent his son to, the whole world, and to see those that would reject God's plan? What would they think about redeemed, like transformed, born again? But then something happens. And they're like, wow, they were so on fire for the Lord, but now that they're not. They, they've, their love for Jesus, like the church in Ephesus, it's, it's not what it was. 
Something happens in their life, and now they're bitter or critical towards God. They were once used, and now they're sidelined. What do they think about all of that? Imagine countless angelic beings watching everything we do. And at this worship service, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, along with all of these angels expressing worth to the lamb that was slain. Expressions. Adoration for what God has done for others. while the redeemed and the elders' expression would be out of appreciation for what God has done for them. An old Turkish proverb says, and I quote, as the people are, so is the music of their land. What does our worship reflect? The third and final song, verse 13, and every creature was which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard them saying, Blessed in honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. So all creation worshiping here. Worship is aimed at the relationship between the Lamb of God, Jesus the Son, and His Father. This is like the, the grand finale, the, the four living creatures, the elders, the redeemed, the angels, and now all of creation, all, all creation admits and confesses and recognizes and bows to Him who sits on the throne and to His, to his Son, the Lamb, forever and ever. In order for worship to be valid, it must have the right object in mind. In order for worship to be accepted by God, it must be aimed at the one true living God. Nothing else is true biblical worship. This is the worship that God accepts, and this is the worship that God prescribes. Notice in verse 13, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. All else, any other kind of worship aimed anywhere else is idolatry. And all of creation testifies to this. In many ways, our worship service becomes a witness service. We are a witness to the Lord. We are a witness to each other. And we are a witness to the world, those who are not saved in our midst. Out of these three, our witness to the Lord is the most important. If that's not right, we will know that. If our focus in this room is not focused on Jesus, we in this room will know that. We'll be like, that's not spirit-filled. Well, it's not Jesus-focused. Spirit-filled worship is going to be Jesus-focused. Amen? Amen? All right. So I'm working on a Bible study 
This morning we're done, okay? You guys, we're done. Fourth of July, go eat a hot dog. But I'm working on a Bible study. I think we'll do it in two weeks. Where I'm going to take, extrapolate from this chapter the key points of worship. And I'm going to reiterate them. And then we're going to have about 50 minutes of worship. Okay? So I want you to think through this study. Go home, listen to it again. Take some voice lessons, something I don't know. <laughs> and then Mead doesn't know about this yet, so Mead, get on it. And we're going to spend almost the entirety of a, of a service worshiping the Lord. Okay, so that's coming. Maybe not next week, but maybe the week after. So an old hymn that 